0: Welcome, welcome everyone to the second episode of Build Your Future Podcast. Today I've got Dan Kennedy on. I'm sure many of you will know him already, but the people that don't. Do you want to introduce yourself, Dan? Hello team, my name's Daniel Kennedy.
1: Uh, I've got a group of companies that consist of property holding companies, a letting company, construction company, a sourcing company, and I also dabble in a bit of education. Bit disappointed that I'm not the first. That's the first thing I've heard of it. I thought I'd be number one, but clearly not. I'll settle for number two. Thank you. Thank you, asking
0: it's still on the podium that's okay <laughs> so safe to say what you just kind of quickly rattled off there is you know your, your sourcing company your construction company your lettings company etc so it's fair to say you have many fingers and many pies and this is one of the reasons why i wanted to get you on is because i think you know with not only your your depth of knowledge but your your width of knowledge of the different um industries that you're in i think you can provide a lot of value to our listeners today so a lot to get through and i guess the best place to start is the very beginning, really. So in terms of, I know that you're obviously in the military when you first kind of got started and so maybe we could talk about that and and how maybe the military, um, some stories behind there, but equally how it set you up to then transitioning into property, if that's okay.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I joined the military basically because I had was very, very fortunate that I had real clarity of vision of what I wanted to do. But like, I think my first word may have been the like, army. Like, I always wanted to join the army. Been pretty obsessed with military history. Uh, really romanticized what it was, uh, as we all often do. Never seeing the realities of the situation. So the second that I could, like 15, 8 months was the time I signed up, uh, which is the earliest time you can sign up. And uh, I joined the military as a medic, so I didn't have a particular regiment. I was in a corp, which is the Royal Army Medical Corp. Uh, and I bounced around from place to place to place to place. And unbeknownst to me, what happens with the military is they invest heavily into the individuals, into the personnel, with courses, with... And at the time, I didn't really appreciate what was happening to me. But the just by being around people who are incredibly disciplined, who are incredibly, forthright with what they wanted to do where they wanted to go there's an immense structure in the military which is which I feel men particularly excel at when there's massive structure and there's progression and you you get a real great sense of fulfillment fulfillment and I did and I was like yeah army's for me completely very absolutely really really happy with my my whole career um and the the only issue is there was a cap on the amount you could earn and I, I even now I'm not too motivated by money really Uh, It never really bothered me. Uh, And I was very, very happy with what we've been paying. The great thing about the military is you would have what we call a pop stars weekend because all our accommodation, our food, our clothes, our bedding, everything was paid for. So everything was disposable. So although we weren't on that much salary wise, we were in comparative to the rest of the population, we lived lifestyles way above our station because we could, because everything was paid for. Uh, and that obviously led me to have real poor relationship with money mm-hmm. because money was guaranteed. It was always guaranteed. It was, I could spend it all and have no ramifications and not have to face the responsibility of me not saving, or investing or doing anything like that. So I had zero financial knowledge. And um, the whole thing that tipped it for me was I found out you could earn like 35 40p extra a day if you learn a language and i was like well which language am i going to get paid the most for so this is how financially illiterate i then spent thousands of pounds to learn chinese to pass the test to make an extra (laughs) 30 30 quid a month less than 30 quid a month and i was like i am a baller an extra 15 quid a month this will pay for itself and what happened when I, i i had loads of chinese friends the conversations were very different They, uh, instead of talking what most of my rest of my mates were talking about, uh, they talked about investments. They talked about property. They talked about long-term like IRRs. They talked about return of investments. And I was like, and just by slowly being around them, I got interested in property and that's how I found it. Uh, And then just by me wanting to practice languages, I actually met my partner who I'm still with now. Um, just because I would go and harass people on the street to try and practice with them. Uh, <laughs> li- literally how I learned. Uh, and then we found this company called the Wealth Dragons uh, and they are one of the property education seminars. Uh, I know who, not, not particularly well thought of, but I can't be a more bigger advocate of that. Like I, am, I, I really, really approve of education and I spend tens of thousands of pounds on it every year. Uh, because I, when you actually, when you're one of those few people that in, implement it, it will pay you back more than you pay it. And this is the great thing about the military. There was never a question of me not doing it because they, they had built into me the the structure of you get told to do this, you go do it. You get told to do this, you go do it. You don't question what can go wrong. You just do it and then find out and then react to the situation. And that has proved, that has paid dividends when I found myself operating within the civilian world in comparison to the military world. because. I often found that there was very great difficulty in getting people to do what they say they would, or telling people to do something. And there'd be reasons why they wouldn't. it's like, this is not the culture that I expected. Coming from the military, it was a bit of a culture shock. So when someone told me like, go market and I go market and then same people on the same course, weren't getting any results. Often the case was that they weren't marketing. It wasn't that they didn't do the work, it's that the reason why they didn't get the results is because they didn't do the work. And for me, the first year was incredibly tough because I I went to the course, did the whole run into the back of the room, dare take my money? Very glad I did, very glad I got sold to because look at what's come about it from that. Uh, And then I started marketing. Now the the issue at the time was, is I didn't have that much money because I paid for it on credit card, which is even worse, but again, no responsibility, really poor relationship with money. Um, and so I, I went knocking on doors. I, I knocked on the doors and I pitched to people I said, I'd like to buy a house. And obviously that got really negative reactions. And I was like, hmm, why is everyone telling me to go away, slamming the door shut? <laughs> I don't understand this. And then as I begin to self-reflect, the only consistent thing here is me and my approach everyone is having the same reaction so it must be my fault so I thought you know what let me pretend to be somebody and then the first thing just by pure fluke I wasn't a builder at this point I was a medic but I had no even now I don't really know much about building I just know about the logistics side and that's what makes the company so successful Um, I knocked on the door said hi I'm a builder if you know anybody if you have any work let me know and what I would do is I'd write 500 pounds on a piece of paper because they didn't have cards at this point, And then we buy houses on a piece of paper, and my number. And then I'd hand it to them. And then I'd look at the big, bold 500 pounds. And I'd pretend that that reminded me that, oh, yeah, as we're builders, I also buy houses. So if you put me in touch with anybody that you know, and I end up buying, I'll give you 500 pounds. And immediately the reactions were... I wasted an awful lot of time pretending to look at work that I had no intention of quoting because they'd be like yeah I've got some work come and have a look at it and I'd be like yeah that's a wall I have no idea what I meant to say here let me get back to you with a quote and then I just like not answer the numbers and whenever because I would get so much work for building work doing that I would just say I'm sorry fully booked up fully booked up but but what happened is I started to get leads Uh, and using the education that I learned from the, the wealth dragon system and structure. Uh, I did my first deal within the first week, so I went up to Hartlepool, knocked on about two, three hundred doors over the weekend, uh, and I knocked on. I'll even tell you the street. It's um, I think it's one Striker Street or two Striker Street uh, in Hartlepool. So I knocked on the door. Uh, the gentleman says, yes. I'm interested in selling, but I don't want to speak to somebody new. I don't trust people. I was like, okay, this is this is odd. So he got his friend round, uh, and his friend was the one that dealt with me. So his friend didn't hear my initial pitch about the £500, and this will be important in the story later. So if, if I didn't have that initial support from the Wild Dragons, I wouldn't have done this deal because this is how novice I was. They, they would say to me, like, right, yeah, it's a freehold property. And I'd have to be like, sorry, one second. Walk into the kitchen, <laughs> call, call the trainer and be like, it's freehold. What does that mean? And be like, don't worry, <laughs> that's good. Walk back, like, this, this is how cringeworthy it was. But I, They must have liked it. I walked back into the living room. And then we'd have a few more com- chats about the question. They'd go, it's also unencumbered. Sorry, one second. Let me just go back into the kitchen. It's unencumbered, what does that mean? And they'd be like, okay, that's no mortgage. Okay, brilliant. So I knew that the properties on this road would be 40 to 45K. So not high level numbers, but enough, enough if I could buy it at the right price. And a really, really key sentence, if you don't take anything away from this is, my advice to you is never be the first to name the figure always let them name the figure because very often they will tell you what they want and then you can pay that and it's a win-win situation because they're getting what they want and you get what you want and he says i need twenty-six thousand pounds so so i can pay for my bungalow um and i was like okay yeah 20 26 that works so we did all the contracts uh, and the, the issue was i didn't have enough money for the ricks because when you're starting you've got to be realistic If if i was a 25 year old, nobody with no credibility, no experience in property, no contacts, no past examples of me succeed. And how can I ever expect an investor to just go off my word? So we have to borrow credibility off people. So I got a Rick survey. Now the issue was I didn't have the money. So I was ringing around, calling everybody, trying to do everything that I could to raise his finance. I went to a cash converters and I was so sure of the deal. I pawned my mom's car. I gave them my mom's car for like a week um, to get the money for the Ricks. And then what I had to do is I had to ask the seller if I could sleep in his living room because I had nowhere to sleep. This is a real, this this is how I did my first deal. Um, And because at this time, obviously, the great thing about the military is you are immediately put on a pedestal and chosen as trustworthy. Because everybody knows somebody who is in the military and it's usually the idiot that became the good guy. It's It's definitely that story in my case. Well, th- this might not be a very popular opinion, but I think the people who enjoyed the military have failed out in normal society. And it's usually their only last, their last sort of port of call because they see their friends going down a path that they don't really want to go. And you know what? I'll get out. Military's my lifeboat. And it, it really does turn around people who are absolute retrogrades into really upstanding people, I feel. And so I stayed there for a week. The Rick survey came back and it came back at 60 grand. And I was like, huh? No property is sold for sixty grand on this on this road. I, I well, don't that's what bad is it? And, and the reason why, and, and the problem with that was, I had already sold the deal on the value that it was going to be forty two, and I'd sold that deal at three and a half k, just to somebody in Sweden called Sven, who'd never met me. Seemed did do diligence on the property. He had he was buying in the area in cash because it's a low value area. He came. Um, he came had a look at the property decided yet? Yeah, uh not not him himself but his trade said yeah that's fine uh and it turned out it wasn't a two bed terrace it was actually a four bed and i had missed a whole floor doing like i'd stayed in this property a week and i didn't realize it was a four bed it was a two bed i think i was there thinking it was a two bed and obviously i couldn't go back to the seller uh, sorry the, the vendor and say hey I want more money because I felt that that was a bit snaky and he trusted me with no experience, no credibility, just based on the ricks of the contract and he was very happy with it. So I was like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll do this deal. So I sold a deal that was valued at 60 that he bought for 26 for three and a half K. So he made 30 grand. So obviously he thought the light was shining out of my ass after that point. He was like, this is my guy. This is my guy. Um, <laughs> and the great thing is uh what happens with a cash purchase is, for those of you who don't know, is that it, it happens a lot quickly, a lot more quickly than if it was a mortgage purchase. So he bought it cash, uh, got the RIC survey, he was very, very happy with it um, and he gave me seventeen fifty up front uh, and then he was going to give me the seventeen fifty after we completed, which is very normal in a sourcing fee, you pay half to start the legals uh, and then you pay half on completion. And because the deal was so good, like I, I now realise I was at risk of being done over there for the seventeen hundred quid. But he wanted more. He was really keen on building a relationship up. Now I had a bit of a conundrum at that point because I was thinking, Bob, the person, the gentleman who I was dealing with, he didn't hear me say I'd give him five hundred pound. And I had the devil and the angel on my shoulder. And like the devil's like, keep it. It's yours. <laughs> it's yours. And the angel was like, no, 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 no. Listen, you, you've got to if this is how you want to run a business this is what you've got to do and I was like no it's all mine and I eventually gave him the 500 pound so I was driving back to Telford um to give my mom my car back and he then called me up and unbeknownst to me he's a local mason, like he was in like a workers man club or made something equivalent and he had three more people that he wanted me to speak to and in that in so I did that it took me probably I came back on the Monday from the course and i had done that deal and sold it by the Friday. So then I was coming back um, on the Saturday, Sunday, and then the following week, with those three leads that he gave me, I closed another two deals, sold them both to Sven, and i paid back for my education, just on wow. uh, in, in contract value. I didn't actually have the money in the account because those two needed mortgages. Uh, and when you need a mortgage, for those of you who don't know, it usually takes, you could say a month but not many people can do it in a month it takes about three to four months and if there's issues it can take six months so i had it coming into the account to pay for the the course that i did um and i just kept doing that and it bloomed very quickly and in the first year i did 21 deals and i made in sourcing fees because i i started to pay for advertising some bandit boards some some proper cards and and stuff so there was associated costs i learned about what gross and net was like i had like 60 70k coming into the bank thinking I was a baller, and then after all costs, that I actually only made 49k, which is still not bad. Uh, and I was like, Brilliant! Now, the issue was every single deal that I had, I tried to raise finance for like every single one. And again, no trust, no credibility, no past history. Like, I even remember going into my grandma and being like, Grandma, listen, I've got this really great deal, and this was the first deal that I tried to really hammer the point that it was a good deal, I could buy it for a uh, 100 and um 100k or whatever and it was worth 210 so it was a good deal and i went into grandma showing showing all these figures and then obviously i'd lived a very hedonistic lifestyle prior to me trying to reinvent myself i was wasting my money the only advice that i ever got financially was when i came back from afghanistan or iraq i had like a big chunk of money and the advice I got was, no, you know what, you should get a big loan so you can get a better car, because that's what everyone else did in the army, and that's exactly what I did. Um, and so I wasn't very astute financially, and everybody, my close friends and family, saw that. So I'm not bitter about it, but I remember going to a grandma, can I borrow this? And she goes, I wouldn't lend you 50 bloody pee, never mind 50 grand, get out of the house. <laughs> I was like, my grandpa, it's me. It's me, with your grandson. She goes, get out, never ask me for money again. <laughs> and it, it was good it was good it was obviously um so eventually i did i did raise this money and this was the same sort of scenario during that first year as well i did six months in afghanistan so while i was sourcing I, because it was a self-fulfilling prophecy and i was paying people who bought me leads i had like two or three guys in in Hartlepool that was giving me deals that i was able to source
0: so you're essentially able to outsource to some degree while you were uh, do, doing your tour
1: exactly that yeah exactly that um and it's something that still it still works today like i've I've got a sourcing business that i use the same method 500 pounds for any referral and it's very rare that i'll buy off someone directly very rare indeed um and i I managed to get the funds uh and what happens when you're in afghanistan this we have a really lovely part of our culture where loads of people write to us and send us haribo socks and letters and all that stuff and i had a pen pal in birmingham and she she was a pensioner really 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 lovely lady sending me all sorts of stuff so on my rest and recuperation in the two weeks that i was off i went back to, to thank her and we were having a conversation i could see that she was very distracted like you know when somebody's burdensome like they have a burden that the weight is on their shoulders the eye contact's not there and I could tell that something was up and I said, what's the, what's the problem? And what had actually happened is she was uh, on the state pension. She, her house wasn't but she'd inherited a house that was in probate that had a mortgage. Now in her mind, she was so nervous about the mortgage payments compounding because they compound on the estate, don't they? When the person mm. passes you, the property goes into probate and it might be six months and the mortgage payments compounding. She was so nervous about that. That she was paying the mortgage directly and it was making her absolutely destitute and I, so i was like that's really not the way to do it you can leave it it will get sold and then you will be able to have the proceeds from the probate I explained all that she goes no no i don't she, she was so adamant that it wasn't wasn't that way that she didn't want it to do and really i was just kind of off the back of my head, thinking that's how it went. I couldn't, I didn't really have clarity of vision, so I didn't have conviction in what I was saying. So that's why I couldn't really persuade her. So I said, hey, I'd be interested in purchasing it. We went round, this is the first deal that I bought. Uh, and I was like, great, let me, let me have a ganders at this. Uh, it was very, very tired, typical person, that an old person that lived in, uh, there was a lift, a disabled lift and everything, uh, detached house in Moseley, which is a great area in Birmingham. Um, and it had a mortgage of sixty thousand pounds on it, and I knew the last the last sale was two hundred K and this was in two thousand and fifteen and it was two thousand sixty. So I thought this might be worth about two ten. So again, never be the first to name the figure. I said, How much do you want for it? And she said, just pay the mortgage and it's yours. Just pay off the mortgage. So it was worth two ten and she offered me it for sixty. And I was like, Susan, I I can't offer you that much. It's too little. Um, I'd be taking advantage. So I said, How about a hundred thousand? so then you have 40,000 with you to, to play with after and then like, what do you think her response was there Tom?
0: Uh, I'm assuming she bit your hand off yeah well you'd think but what she actually said was how about 107?
1: I was like hold oh, no. you were just about to give it me for 60,000 quid and now you're trying to squeeze 7 grand out of me Yeah, and I loved
0: it obviously, I was
1: like yeah sure, 107
0: I mean, that's still, what, 50% below market value, so it's still a win. Yeah, 49 if we're going to get factually
1: correct. So, I bought that deal, uh, and I won't tell you the story about how I raised the finance, because the the gentleman who I raised it from is quite a private individual. Sure. Those who know me will know who I've got it from, Um, and he'll be a bit annoyed if, if I tell the story. But basically, I just met someone randomly, and I made them a friend, and then over the course of the deal, we managed to raise the funds to buy it because at, at that stage, when I, when I talk more about the construction, I'll, I'll tell you why I didn't have the 50 K to buy it because I i would lost it in a, another, I lost a big chunk of it in another venture. Um, so we bought the deal, we turned it into a six bed HMO. I spent 60,000 on it. Obviously I had a few hiccups with the builder. Uh, but then we found a, a good guy who I thought was a good guy, but only a good guy temporarily he delivered the hmo uh, we then got it revalued at 325 so we pulled out initial uh, quite a lot of money out uh, from the initial purchase price we pulled out the refurb costs the deposit and an additional 80k and in that one deal alone i had made more money than i had in the 10 years in the army so i'd made wow. more net worth more uh, and also i was making it 1100 pounds net from the after bills when it was full with myself managing so it was a it was a good deal and I've still got it today and we're in the process of turning that six bed into a block of six studios now because we're redeveloping it which will increase the value further so the, the the reason why I didn't actually have the money was um because I was trying to do construction as well but but heading back to that deal um all I did then was obviously I absolutely shouted about it i told everyone this these were the numbers this was this because i knew it was very important to present yourself as somebody incompetent competent if i wanted to raise finance and then my business partner elton who was the first sort of initial person to say he came up to me said i've got 180 grand let, let, let's do this again uh, in the wealth dragon network so not only did i get taught i also got the money from the wealth dragon network to do my first sort of kml group uh, and then we started buying hmos by and doing larger HMOs using the same contractor. So very quickly, we went from one HMO and then we had two HMOs on the go, which were two eight beds, one Jiggins Lane that I've still got, one uh, uh, Anderton that me and Elton have still got. Then we did another HMO with a JV partner, uh, which was, no, sorry, we did another HMO with me and Elton, which was Yardley that we still have today that has a building yard at the back. Uh, and then another HMO, Kings Heath, which was an absolute disaster all with jv finance it's only really that we bought that in 2017 uh, and the builder was just atrocious and now i'm going to tell you why i got into the construction business so that, that's how i developed the source of business basically i i, I and i still do it to now today because i really enjoy the interaction with the sellers it's a crazy 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 market to be in in terms of the situations that you often get involved in and what, what tends to happen if a seller gets themselves into a real stressful situation, they'll take it out on the saucer, um, because you're the only person that's speaking to them. And very often they'll be like, you're trying to screw me over. And I'm not trying to screw you over. And, and what service I kind of offer is property consultation. I will say like, if you can afford to put it on the market and get the maximum that you can, you shouldn't, I shouldn't be your first point of call. And what I've found is rather than being me and the seller, me with the seller against all you those bastard investors works a lot better when all those options have been discounted and I'm the only option left. So I'll tell them go put it on the market. You'll get more money if you can afford to wait for a year or six months. If they can't, can you raise any money to do works to present the property in a in a better manner so people can purchase it and maybe you can extract the most value you can from it. i'll offer is there anybody that would potentially invest with you and turn it into a rental and then when you discount all the options you're the only option left you get okay well i tried if you need to get rid of it here's my cash offer and that's how i was able to get so many deals well i say so many that's so many successes because other people were doing as much work as me but just not seeming to get the same results and i think it's when you come from a place where you're offering an opportunity rather than trying to take value it it comes across in how you speak how you talk how you look at them and it's very very congruent with what you're trying to say and do and people trust you a lot more and and the military obviously had a massive effect on the ability to garner trust with people initially because the first thing that i would try and do is i'd get it into the conversation i'd like pretend like oh oh sorry i just knocked over my medals like on the phone and stuff like that uh, just to try and get it into the oh, what meant oh well i was in the military blah 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 blah. blah. anything that i could do to get it in because it really just and I, I noticed the difference versus when i did use it and when i didn't um and i'm i'm really yeah, really so full
0: of that to it. similar to being a nurse or a policeman or or, or anything exactly. like that right it's everyone kind exactly. of has that or or a teacher or or anything else of that sort of kind There's kind of that that, um, respect of society there. So I think it makes sense to kind of leverage that, but what you've just been talking there and I've seen it time and time again is it's kind of sales 101 and you're, you're going in. Um, I think a lot of people kind of see sales as a, as a zero sum game, you know, for you, for me to win you, the owner must lose. And for me to kind of squeeze as much out of this deal as I possibly can, etc. When actually you've kind of not kind of reverse psychology, but you've given them options and outs there and you said, Look, I'm I'm here to help. Let's explore option A. Does that work for you? No, okay. How about option B? No, okay. How about option C? No, okay. Well, option D is this and I could potentially assist you with X, Y, and Z. Does that work for you? And they go, Oh actually, he's he's tried to he hasn't just come and said, Right, I can give you a hundred grand You know, ASAP. Let's get this deal done, sort of thing. So again, these are people's homes. They've lived in them for five, ten, twenty years, and it's something very kind of personal to them. And it's about the ability to build that rapport, right? And it's something that you've obviously done a very good job at job in doing. And I think that's what's kind of led to this success in these deals is building that rapport, building that respect, and building that ultimate trust. And I find that a lot of people probably skip that. They want to get to A to B so quickly that they might actually miss out very important steps along the process, which ends up meaning that they that they fail on, on the, the final hurdle of getting the deal over the line, right? Exactly. And a lot of the deals, so, so many of the deals have
1: been where I've been like, go do this. You might be able to, you'll, you'll definitely get more than what I can offer you. And they'll go put it on the market. They'll get the offer. I'll get the thank you. And then six months later, the sale has fallen through. They come back to me and they'll be like, I just can't deal with these inconsistent people. Now the price isn't more important. What's important is the absolute certainty that it will get sold. So now I'll accept your price. So people will accept a discount for the certainty and you've just got to offer them speed and certainty over the price. You can only get three things when you're doing a deal. is price, speed and certainty. You can't get all three, you can only get two. You can get speed and price, that's what you've got to uh, sort of come down on if you want certainty of sale but you want them the the most then you're not going to get speed Uh, it's it's one of those three factors and you've just got to explain it to them that you can't get everything just it's very very easy to come from a position where you've tried to help that person first they've come back to you and say it hasn't worked i did try it but thank you or they don't like estate agents they didn't get treated well by the estate agent or the estate agent inflated the price and they didn't get any offers Um, so many, so many scenarios where they've come back to me and I'm the only option there, and instead of being like, I can't believe I'm selling it, they're they're thanking me. They're being really, really appreciative of the effort that I've put into them. And it's very, very rare that I'll purchase a property on the first meet. I, I, I've only uh, probably less than 10 that I've sourced that's been on the first meet, the vast majority are, are in what we call a pipeline where I follow up every three months and I just check on the sale and and I'm still following up until it's sold.
0: Just again in sales I talk answer. about the seven touch points. So, so usually it takes like, seven meetings, seven conversations to to get to a point where our sales can take place. And again it's oh, building, that that, or building that trust and and yeah, you don't just kinda of turn up to somebody's doorstep one day and be like, Right, we're gonna buy this. It's again it's that time and I was really enjoying your story, so I was trying not to interrupt too much. But um going back to what one of the first things you originally said was um you know, turning up and and kind of being on the phone in the kitchen and asking these questions. And on the last podcast, I was talking a lot about the importance of getting started and and equally not being afraid uh, afraid to fail forward. And this is something that, again, maybe when you you, you were younger and more risk-prone and equally... didn't really care what people thought about you. You were just like, right, let's just get stuck in. Let's get started and, and see what happens, sort of thing. And I find that, as you were kind of saying there as well, that people go onto these courses and do these bits, but they're not actually apply anything and then wonder why they're not getting re- the results while you were obviously getting stuck in. And it kind of comes down to that, maybe the analysis paralysis and, and everything else. But it's like reading a 100 self-help books, but they're not applying any of that information. You can read as many books as you like. You can absorb as much content as you like and everything else. And, you know, that that's obviously don't get me wrong. It's an important place to begin with, because you're kind of, you're opening your mind up to new things. You know, I remember re- reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad when I was 16, for instance, and that was one of the, the first things that got me into this sort of thing. So reading books, listening to podcasts has all been content, going to education seminars are all really good. But then it gets to a point where you then need to apply that information. And I was listening to one of um, Stephen Bartlett's podcasts, and he was saying that it's like um, getting in the car and putting the sat-nav on, but never actually, you know, turning the engine on and, and putting your foot on the accelerator. You can only do so much, but there's got to be a point where you yourself have to get in the driver's seat and, and start taking the lead, right?
1: Absolutely. And I think, uh, cause obviously we all know, we know the education industry gives false hope to a lot of people. 95% of the people will do nothing, but the 5% that do absolutely kill it. Absolutely kill it. They turn their whole lives around and that it's just something that I don't know what the difference is between the five and the ninety-five percent is. Um, it's it's for me. Like I don't read self-help books um, because I don't I just get really bored. I read books about space and stuff like that. It's it's what excites me and wiz- wizards. But uh, I am a massive advocate of education. In every course, and I have a rule: I won't buy the next education course until I've made my money back from the previous one. And that's sort of my parameter of if it's successful. And I've that's spent over hundred thousand pounds on courses. Uh, easily a £100,000. Like this year alone, I'm, I'm at 30. Um, and there's just so much value to be taken from people who have trodden the same path. Like success is not new. It, like, especially in property, the work has been done by the people before us. All you have to do is just copy them. You just have to, like the, our whole financial structure has been set up to d- devalue the, the value of money. Right? So you want to get assets, you want to get debt, you want to get debt that pays. You want to get assets that pay the debt that you can get in property, right? It's, it just, it's a no brainer. There's nothing new. Anybody who says they've got this new strategy, this new is, is a liar because it's all been done before. HMO has been around since the eighties. Serviced accommodation has been around since the medieval times. Like we had inns on the side of country roads that were serviced, nothing is new. It just comes through in a, in a, in a different name. Now. All you have to do is just take the bits from what you like, find out what resonates with you and just implement it. It's like doing the actual work. It's, it takes an awful lot of work. And the interesting thing about property, it's incredibly slow to get started. Like the curve for your income is like this, but so bloody long. And then it's, it only goes up a bit. And then like by year, year 10, 15, if you're really good, then it starts to shoot up. So you're planting well, they're, they're seeds. They call it the hockey stick,
0: area, don't they? Where the at the beginning you, you, you apply so much, and it's kind of slow, incremental things, and all of a sudden, whoop! It then kind of shoots shoots up like a hockey stick. And I find that similar to obviously you're a keen gym go and everything else as well. It's similar to that. It's like going to the gym for the first week and then expecting to have huge guns and PBs every day and everything else. But actually, <laughs> it's it's that kind of consistent, and then you'll see the growth
1: yeah completely right you've said a lot of things that i didn't realize had already like that i thought i was discovering something new but clearly other people have discovered it before so it reiterates that nothing is new i've like the seven points of contact that's the first time i've heard of that and it's absolutely true when you're dealing with sellers like absolutely true the more time you get in contact with them the more they trust you um and you what, what i find from the analysis paralysis people is that they're so important they the get it right rather than just doing it and then learning the lessons. You'll learn far more than you will from any course if you just went out, knocked a few hundred doors and just analysed what happened. Like no one's going to teach you, be able to impart the knowledge and put it in your brain because when people are telling you to f off and slamming the door in the face you will very quickly pick up lessons and cues and you'll realise that you might be being a bit socially inept, like your your social skills are not quite where they need to be so you're probably being a bit too direct, a bit too and it's really, really important that you actually seek out this discomfort when you're involved in business. You seek out the, the parts of the business that make you feel horrid and you draw lessons from them rather than trying to avoid them, like you lean into them. And there's been many, many situations where I've been like, this is absolutely horrible. Why am I doing this for a free 3.5k free sourcing fee? But the nuances of discussing people's problems has held me in really good stead when dealing with tenants with problems like it bleeds into all aspects of life like the the real reward of being an entrepreneur is not the financial reward although it's it's pretty good especially in a time like this there's literally no financial concern for people who are in this bubble who have knew that it was coming and prepared but the real reward is the person that you become and who you the way you're able to articulate yourself the way you're able to read a situation the way that you can go into any business and because of the disciplines and the, the way that your mindset, you, you just make it a success. You force it to be a success regardless of what business it's been in. And that's why I feel that the businesses that I have up and down the supply chain are, are all self-sustaining. They could all work by themselves, purely based on the foundation of seeking out the discomfort, seeking out, not, not even having the option of not doing it enter my head. Like it's really, really important that you don't entertain this excuse factory that you have that is your brain, there'll be a whole reason, a plethora of reasons why not to do it, but only really one reason to do it. And that's to gain a lesson from it, gain some valuable insight from the discomfort or the horrid situation that you're in.
0: Absolutely. And it's, I, I couldn't agree more what you were saying there about d- discomfort. And they say that growth is on the other side of comfort. And as humans, you know, we we'll always seek shelter and warmth and, and, uh, you know, good, good food and this level of comfort. And so sometimes I find that actually the, the greater salary you're on and the more comfortable you become in terms of kids, marriage, let's say you're on 75 grand a year in a nice stable, nine to five sort of thing. You're, you're so comfortable and content to some degree that then it's kind of hard to, to kind of then do the graft and go and knock on 200 doors. Cause you're thinking. I'm quite warm here I'm quite comfortable why do I then need to step out of this and and actually fortunately I started really young I think you kind of started at a decent young age as well and the um, Tom Henderson who I had on before obviously started relatively young as well and was he I number one
1: he was, was he number, number one, one yeah that is scandalous <laughs> <laughs>
0: but having having people like that is don't don't get me wrong there's it's never too late to start and with age, you then probably have certain wisdom. You then have certain financial backing and everything else. While when you're younger, you have time and that risk exposure, let's say, but you don't have the money. So there's, there, there's no right or wrong. There's different issues for different calibre of people and people in, in different parts of their life. But the key point here is that, Growth will always come the other side discomfort. And like I said about reading these books and everything else, is, it's good to, to seek that growth. But then it's about stepping outside of it and, and doing your first deal and being a, not afraid to fail forward or pick up the phone and ask these questions.
1: I, I, I definitely understand what you're saying in, in regards to people being set in their ways. But there, there, was, there were obviously counters to every single rule. I, I, I kind of think that people are on one or two things. There's only down and there's only up. There is absolutely nothing, nobody that stays the same. You're either on an upward spiral or you're on a downward spiral. And when these compounded effects that you, these habits that you have in your early years really will affect your later years. Now, if you've been on that downward spiral, it's very hard for somebody to turn around and then go on the up and up and up and up if they have these bad habits of being guarded of new things not enjoying any change when the only thing that is guaranteed is change there's i've met people who have been very very set in their way so stubborn that they've been so regretful of the things that they didn't do versus the things that they did Um, and it's that, that you need to have especially when it comes to having that aspect of not caring what people think is you need to have a real awareness of how short time is time is so incredibly short now this might be fortunate might be the wrong word to use but i'm unfortunate to have been with people because of the nature of my job when their time had run out and almost always the last few conversations are talking about what they didn't do rather than what they did do they all have not one person that moved on didn't tell me about a regret that they had didn't tell me about they, they, they weren't complaining that this person was mean to them in that situation. They were all like, I can't believe I haven't done this yet. I can't believe I haven't done this. I can't believe I didn't do that. I can't believe I didn't do this. Like, I'm so aware of how short time is. And every day I have a bit of a thing that I do in the morning. is I'll, I'll find someone in history and I, I practice gratitude. Uh, I find someone in history that has made my life better. like, it, And I'll, I'll just think about that person, whether it was like, Thomas Telford for being able to manufacture steel on an industrial scale that gave me the ability to live a comfortable life. Whether Abraham Abraham's hobby, discovery of coal that enabled the mass production, uh, charcoal, sorry, that enabled the mass production of this steel. There's so many things that if that one person didn't do this thing, our whole lives would be different and we would be absolutely worse off. So I think practicing gratitude and being really aware of how night time is and how lucky we are to be even being able to be awake so I'm a big 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 advocate of stoicism and this is why I really believe that success leaves clues because thousands of years ago they were saying that the youth of today is going to ruin society the same stuff that these 50 40 60 year olds say now thousands of years ago they were saying if you don't have a goal no matter where you go, you're going to be taking steps that are meaningless. And they said it in the form of, if a ship knows not to which port it sails, no wind is favourable. And it's so important. You've got to have a goal. You've got to have really deliberate actions. You cannot just whittle away your life and just get rich by accident or just get a massive legacy by accident. It takes deliberate, planned action. And there's a, a few people in history that all you have to do is look back and i have a real sense of responsibility from like that you and me and every one of us has thousands of people that hunted survived diseases wars famines tyrants They, they they killed they really really struggled and when i think back at that i think how on earth could I entertain this problem that this person might be mean to me if I knock on their door? That is not a problem that I'm even going to give credence to because three generations ago my ancestors were clawing the ground with no nitrogen fertilizer, praying that something would grow, that they would survive through the winter. And uh, uh, I just can't fathom how I could even entertain that this is a hurdle that I'm even going to give it credence. It's not a hurdle. Like we as humans are meant to be in a really harsh environment and we're not in a harsh environment now and we can get soft very quickly and when we don't have these horrible like oh crap the romans are coming oh crap the anglo-saxons are coming oh crap the Celts are coming when we don't have those outside dangers we we look for dangers for things to complain and the real like i i'm a hundred percent certain that we are in the tough men have created good times and now we're in the good times, create weak men. We are definitely in the decline. Like we're in the heart of a banished empire where we don't really value the, the family household anymore as we used to. Everyone's an individual. Everyone's got their rights. No one gives service to others like it used to be. Um, and this is, these are all symptoms of a core problem. Like we don't have a struggle anymore. Life is too easy. Uh, we, this is why we have depression. This is why we have these people, like so many people not having a purpose. Like, If you need to get up and go till a field for you to survive, you're not gonna entertain the fact that you are, you're sad, like you're gonna go and do the work. And then when you've done that work, you're gonna feel feel fulfilled and it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like there are people in Syria, for example, to, to, to get political, that have lost their whole families that still get up, go bake bread, because they need to get some bloody money to survive. Like they're they're not thinking, Oh God, this person might be, might be mean to me. I can't possibly try and start a business. I couldn't possibly fail like that. There, there is just, we, you just have to be aware of how fleeting life is, how short time is, and that you do not have time to be aware, like to waste. Time is not to be wasted. You have to work, 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 and, and really honor all the people that came before you that enabled you to be who you are. Cause you, you might not be aware of this asking but not even, many people don't even know that you can change your life for the better. So to be one of the very few that know that if I take action and I do things that my life's gonna get better, most people just live in absolute quiet desperation, never knowing that, thinking this is my lot. And I, I can attest to that, because that, that's what I thought, yeah. I used to look at houses while I was in secondary school, because I'll never own anything like that, that's for other people. Um because I, I was conditioned to think, yeah, this is my lot, and that's what our society does. It it really, really doesn't applaud, especially in the UK. it Doesn't applaud change. It doesn't applaud people climbing the social classes. Um, it, it it that it. But most other places do. Like they they struggle, they survive, they work hard, and it, it and it's applauded. Like if you just look at every Saturday night, and this is kind of a weird thing that I used to do while I was working. I used to like drive round on a Saturday night as I was working, because when I would uh put the bandage boards up it would be on like a friday afternoon and i just used to sit there and be like you're all wasting your time while i'm working and i used to get a bit of energy from that um and then go and like who was the real idiot they were all having a good time and i was up in the cold like putting up bandit boards i hope someone calls me i need a deal i need a deal <laughs> um, but there's there's just been many situations where like th- there was a an invitation to go to a Christmas party. And I was like, listen, man, if, if we're not talking about making money, if we're not making money together, if we're not building a business together, I don't really want, there's only so many seats at the table. Like, I don't really want to spend time with you, know, unless that's going to be the topics of conversation. I don't want to talk about what drink I want to drink. I don't want to talk about holidays. I want to talk about business assets, how to build it long-term, how to pass it down to generations. Talk about past gratitudes that we have today. Like those are the types of conversations I want to have. And when you, cultivate uh, a friendship group like that, that there's, there's never, no, it's impossible, it's, that, that doesn't even come up. It's when that it's, it's, inevitable because you're going to take the actions to get you there. You should look at things and, and I really make an effort to do this. I go and look at skyscrapers in my city and I get angry that I don't own them. I get like, I'm like this, this, I can't believe that isn't me. Why does somebody else own that? And it, it spurs me to work. Um, and. I just think, especially now in modern society, we are so, so feeble and weak now. Most people, they they want their weekends, they want their holidays. And like just a generation ago, people would be working to survive. There was no central heating. Even like 30, 40 years ago, there was no central heating. It was wood fires and stuff. And you have to seek out, especially as a man, if you want to be happy and fulfilled, you have to seek out suffering. Be that starting a business, building the plane on the way down. And if somebody has put work into you that you are even aware that you can improve your condition, you are absolutely obligated to earn as much as you can. You are obligated to teach as much as you can. You are obligated to build as many businesses as you can. You are obligated to employ as many people as you can, because you are one of the few people. Especially if you are successful at it, you are one of the few people who people have put work into that you are aware, you're competent, and you're able. So that's that's kind of why I. I, I don't know what kind of where I'm going with that, but there's you just can't entertain the excuses. There are so many things out there that are going to really like there's, there's going to be a day where you really have an excuse to be upset. You really have an excuse to take pause. And these little inconsistent things that happen day to day that can affect your mood if you let them. You, you, there isn't time to be angry at these really insignificant events. Just seeing them as part of life, like the obstacles are the way they're not in the way. Is a, a a real sort of ethos that i i 'm trying to adhere to and they oh,
0: exactly 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 the, the modern stoic he 's fantastic, I love him no absolutely, uh, just just kind of rifting off some of the stuff that you just said there i I completely agree with uh, the the friendship circles you know they they say show me your friends and I'll show you your future. And I do believe in that. And, and equally you're the the sum of the five people you spend your most time with. And it makes sense. You know, if you spend your time with five people that are doing nothing with their lives, all on the dole, you know, going to the pub, living paycheck to paycheck sort of thing, it's very different to surround yourself with five people that want to build a, a business in whatever form it is. Um, you know, want to move to or want to travel the world and see the world and, and everything else. And it's, it's two very different people, two very different mindsets. And you have to kind of decide, well, well, where do I want to be? And, and equally, as I was saying uh, the other day, that the entrepreneurship journey can be quite lonely sometimes as well if all your friends are, you know, like that, like that, um, group yeah. that we just said there and you want to try and break that cycle that then feel quite lonely. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to start this podcast and start to kind of engage with these sorts of conversations because you kind of go, Oh shit, I'm not the only one. And uh, you know, other people think like this and, and it's kind of that it also assists that motivation and building that network and, and connecting like-minded people. So now I'm really kind of glad you said that. And, and so that's really positive. But then equally following on from that is you mentioned stoicism there as well and and the fleetingness of knife and it's it's funny because I just bought a, a Memento More life calendar. So oh, I'm not sure if you've seen it. It's them.
1: horrendous, isn't it? They're fantastic, yes. I, I would run really and get mine, but yeah, I have one as well.
0: Where <laughs> so it counts for anyone, down to your death.
1: Horrendously emotivating.
0: So I think the average age in the UK for a man is eighty one, eighty two years 82, of age, I believe. Eighty two mind goes. And, through. Uh, and uh, and so a life candor essentially breaks your life down into weeks up to 82, and let's say you're 40 at the minute, or then kind of black out uh, the, the 40 years of your life, and then it'll say how many weeks you have left. And it's 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 morbid, <laughs> don't get me wrong, but actually nothing yeah. like that gives you a kick up the arse more so, because yes. again, about seeking discomfort, everybody likes to to bury their head in the sand to, to, to some degree, and momentum more is, one day you will die, and so it's about living the the best life and the most fulfilling life you can possibly do. And and so having these uncomfortable truths kind of written on your wall, and and you're looking at it, you think, shit, I need to do something with my life because the last thing you want to do yeah. is blink. You're 82, you're on your deathbed, and you go, what have I done?
1: Exactly, exactly. It's such a good calendar. Like it, it oh yeah, I've got one as well. It as you say, just it does. It does sound morbid but when you do it you have a sense of urgency like you'll do more in a week than you did in a month it is it, how the effect that it's had on me like i'm very aware that i'm gonna die i'm very aware that the people that love me and i love are gonna die um and you, it makes you pre- you practice a lot more gratitude you've got to surround yourself with all these types of things because your mind is going to seek comfort you're, you're designed to seek comfort so you've got to really really force your body and your mind consciously to seek discomfort and like I'm looking at my board and I've got loads of different sayings that I read every day and I'm gonna gonna read some of them because they're all very stoic yeah please do Um, so I've got seek not good in external things seek it in yourselves you become what you give your attention to success needs to be earned and re-earned every single day the key is to keep company only with people who breathe, whose presence calls forth your best. And this this is my favourite. The trials you encounter will introduce you to your strengths, remain steadfast, and one day you will build something that endures, something worthy of your potential. That's a, that's a good one. Now this one might be a bit out there, but be discriminating about what thoughts, ideas, and people you permit into your lives. Um, and then the final one is the world moves aside to let any man pass who knows where he's going. Now these are sayings from thousands of years ago they're, they're not new they're not something that's been thought up today they're, they're from like seneca epictetus uh, marcus aurelius um in, uh there's another one which the key to happiness is not in seeking more but develop the capacity to enjoy less and i get just i, I struggle to meet people who are as happy as i am with the lifestyle that i am and it, it's all deliberate like it you get happy by mistake when you have these right types of mindsets when you're surrounded. And I'll I'll harp on back to your, your little spiel about when you find other people that think you're the same, it is during that first entrepreneurial journey, when you're not really with anybody and you think like you can look at the degradations of society and be like, am I the only one seeing this? Am I the only one looking at this person, wasting all their money on on alcohol, on, on really bad. Things and not investing in their future. Bearing in mind I used to be one of those people. Uh, and seeing that this is not the way that we were meant to live. This is not the way that we were meant to exist. This is really bad for the human mind, the body and the soul. Like, I can't be the only one that sees this. Like, There's nothing appealing about going out at 2am in the morning drinking myself into a stupor anymore when, once you get unplugged. And then you finally sort of like you, you'll chat to loads of people and then you sort of get to know them. And then the subject get deeper and deeper and deeper. And then you finally meet somebody that thinks the same and you're like, oh, oh, my goodness. hope remains. I'm not the weird one. Everyone else is the weird one. But in reality, you you few, you very few, uh, the finite resource that you, you see, like this isn't conducive to a happy, good life. And the vast majority of people will... Like they'll, they'll accidentally waste all of their lives. They don't mean to, but they'll just be like, oh, I'll do it next week. I'll do it next week. I'll do it next week. And their life is over. Wake up at 82 and it's over. It's gone. No more time left. And that's why that calendar is really, really good. Every time I tick it, I get butterflies. I get a sense of adrenaline, adrenaline.
0: And I'm well, like, it dreads.
1: <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's a good feeling. It's not a bad thing. Initially it was, but mm. you color, you color the black squares out and it's, it's all on one page. It's yours on one page. Yeah. So you see this counter going down, down, down. And it's like a, like when you stand back at it, you can see that eventually there's going to be more black than there's going to be white. And that means you're, you're halfway. Like you, like, And every time I feel like I've got to work, I've got to work, I've got to work. And, and it gives you a sense of urgency. It's really, really important to remind yourself every day that you ate, you ate immortal, you're all going to pass. Everyone before you has died, everyone after you will die, and you will die as well. It's, it's, I can't, I'm not a big, can't be a big enough advocate for that calendar.
0: I really can't. One of the, one of the best things I did was when COVID first kicked off and there was a lot of fear within the world and obviously the UK went into lockdown and there was a lot of uncertainty and people were passing away left, right, center, and I, I think everyone was to some degree scared. And that's when I first stumbled across. Um, the Daily Stoic by Ryan Holiday, one of the, the key podcasts that I listen yeah. to. And Anika, I have his book, The Everyday Stoic. And we've been kind of talking a little bit about stoicism there. And yes, yeah, listening to the the key parts of Seneca and Marcus Aurelius and, and Nero and Plato, etc. I found really, really beneficial to my own mind. Because they talk a lot about controlling what you can control and and being within your your own mind and one of the things that you kind of listen your one of your quotes there is be discriminated about who you let into your life and the information that you let into your life and again you kind of see this if if you eat a lot of shit food then don't be surprised when you're, you're fat o- obese you know you, you struggle to walk up a hill for instance and equally don't be surprised if you consume a lot of shit content that you know your mindset is is completely different so Again, it comes down to choice, doesn't it? And for me, I'd like to, anything that's kind of drama, I try and stay away from the news as much as I possibly can. Uh, I try and stay away from crappy TV shows like Love Island and stuff because it's not serving me. I want to be listening to podcasts of of successful people or, or reading books about Marcus Aurelius or so I want to be watching true films like uh, the the founders one of my favorite films or the big short and and th- these things that are are educational and interesting opposed to Let just get- consuming consistent crap content and one of the things that you've kind of mentioned there about kind of good times make weak people. And I notice obviously your your dog in the background there. And I guess it's an example of of what you're crashing around doing. So it's it's an example of us kind of, I guess, wolves now becoming dogs because life just become too easy and too tame. What have you got there?
1: So I can't recommend this book enough, these two, especially, so they're not self-help books, but they are. They are really, really great. I love this book, Trump: The Art of the Deal. Okay. And th- this one uh, with Epictetus. If you wanna, if you wanna learn about Stoicism, it's a guide to the basically the a Stoic and Socratic guide to life.
0: I've got Meditations on my uh, on my. Uh living room table
1: Have you find that i find it difficult to read it's it's more like something that you pick up and read like a page a day and then think on the page and i can't really yeah. read it
0: again it's it's not like a, a novel or yeah. a fictional book that you can kind of crash through it when you, you pick up when you're having your coffee in the morning you read a page or two and then you move forward but just going back to that covid thing i just wanted to kind of again i think with human nature, maybe because of the individualistic nature of the, the Western society, who knows, but we all kind of think that we're all unique and we're all special and we're all on our own journey, which, you know, to some degree is true, but equally, you look back at Stoicism, for instance, and, and during Marcus Aurelius's reign, there was something called the Antonine Plague, which obliterated the majority of Romans, the, the majority the, of Europe the population, as well. Yeah. And, and you kind of realise that covid at this point in time is oh my god like what what, what's going to happen it's a a global pandemic and everything else and you kind of look back in in life and you think we're not special this happened before and it will continue to happen again and this is just a moment in history and there was something for me anyway oddly comforting in that because you're not special you know i'm sure that hundreds if not millions of people before you have had a business go wrong or a partner's cheated on you or you know you, you've lost uh a child or you've lost a parent or, or you've lost something everyone's gone through something and I feel like sometimes it's easy to sit there and be like why me what why is this issue happening to me and and how am I going to deal with it but actually taking a step to the side and, and kind of thinking I'm not special and this has happened to other people and they've continued to survive, learn, grow from these things. How can I do the same? And there's something oddly comforting I find in that.
1: Completely, completely true. And when you're, and even now, even with your mindset and my mindset, there will be situations where you'll feel yourself being like, I can't believe this is happening to me. I can't, this will poor me, poor me. And then you have to snap yourself out of it. And that's why if having these stories that you can use as be like, oh. If we put all our problems in a circle and you could see everyone else's problems, you would take yours very, very quickly back and be like, whoo, I am a lucky salt. <laughs> uh, <laughs> almost definitely. There's always somebody who's suffering more than you. And there's always, all... and, and some people are suffering and they have no chance and nothing that they could do will ever improve their condition. So the fact that you're able to improve your condition is you are like one of the few already. So you should be really thankful just got to practice gratitude over and over and over again take responsibility even if it wasn't your fault it was your fault uh, because you allowed it to happen to you like you can't but like if you can control it great control it if you can't then don't give it credence or fault It's it's, Mm. mindset is such an important thing. Now, when I initially got into an entrepreneurial ship and people told me about mindset because I was like a a military guy and I was like cold logic. I was like, don't waste my time with this crap. This is ridiculous. Like, give me the parameters. What do I do? I'll do it and I'll go and make it work. I don't care about my, I'm gonna do it. I don't care what I think. Uh, Not realizing that that was part of the mindset that made me successful. Um, You've really got to just be cold, clear and have clarity and not be emotional at all even when things go wrong and having people around you that can snap you out of it when you can't snap yourself out of it because there's been situations for for me where i've been like i can't believe this is happening i've had two loans recalled from the bank i need to raise 400k by friday and instead of raising the 400k i'm sitting there feeling sorry for myself and then somebody snaps me out of it and then i go do it um the you your whole life is going to be fraught with absolute cataclysmic mistakes that you need to solve complete chaos that you need to navigate and i'll tell you like so we talked about the sourcing business we talked about how i got my first properties now i can talk about the construction company and how that blew up and why i started it so i've sourced a couple of deals one of the gentlemen that i sourced the deal said can you refurbish my property so i was like I've sourced like six deals, man. Of course I can have refurbished the property. So with no, ex- no experience, no credibility, no past um, history of ever dealing with trades. I said, yes, of course, of course I will manage this construction remotely from London when the deal's in Hartlepool. What could go wrong? <laughs> so anyway, I find a few trades. I pick somebody called Jimmy. And the, the trouble is what I find with trades is they're so goddamn charming. And me th- coming from the military, thinking that really naively that everyone is the same, because in the military, no one hides from their mistakes. The act of that mistake not happening again is way more important than the pride of the person that caused the mistake. Now that's what makes it such a professional body. And there's, if you make a mistake deliberately, you'll get punished. But if you make a mistake by accident and that everyone learns from it, it's seen as a positive, not a negative. And that, that's why British military, person per person is one of the best in the world Um, I've been out there in the world seen the other militaries and there's there really isn't nothing like it in terms of the professionalism that's why most armies are modeled off ours all the professional armies in the world are modeled off ours because of our system and how there are armies out there that where the soldiers don't listen to the officers for example it really 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 sort of understated how good our army is I feel obviously I'm biased because I was in it but it's personally i'm really really proud of it anyway come out come out thinking everyone to say, and i explain what i'm doing to this builder and he's like brother yes absolutely you're my guy we're gonna make so much money together we're gonna do really well like, i love your model i love your determination telling me everything that i want to hear feeding my ego i was like yeah i am determined yeah i am doing really well and then i was like i found my builder he is it he is it um because i well, right i'm gonna need 7k for the material so i was like jimmy mate d- do not worry big d has got you let me go get the 7k so <laughs> i give him the 7k and immediately he starts walking to his van right like, jimmy you're going to get the materials yeah he goes yeah mate and then he closes the door drives off and it's oh like literally as he drives off i'm like i don't know his second name i didn't get his license plate i have no contract let me message him and i'm blocked on facebook and i'm like oh no <laughs> pure character at that, that moment so then i quickly jump in the car drive around and i've lost him call him can't call him so i go to the police and they repeat back to me what went in my mind they were like you don't know his second name you don't know his license plate you don't have a contract and you don't know and you don't know who it is what do you expect us to do with that i'm like oh i've lost it then and i I've lost that 7k. So obviously I'm not going to make the investor pay for that. That came out of my, um, initial funds. Cause it's really good. If you, you gotta own your mistake. So do you think after that, I learned my bloody lesson?
0: I'd hope so well
1: embarrassingly to say that wasn't the first time last time that it happened it happened one more time but then after that i never i, I adopted the rule i'm never paying upfront. <laughs> <laughs> it happened on my, my what, what, first what's
0: deal for me once shame on you for me twice shame on me well i've been fooled hundreds
1: of times by builders so i'm an idiot <laughs> but so that was i already had a very guarded relationship with builders after that point understandably um and I never blame Jimmy. I blame me for my naivety because that's a real enduring theme. After the sourcing, I decided the best way to get over any problem, even if somebody did me wrong, is I allow them to happen. So what can I do differently to prevent it? So I adopted the rule. Never pay up front. Uh, Then I start to get builders in Birmingham. It goes really well. One or two deals. And what tends to happen is some people are not fit to be rich. Some people make money and it absolutely destroys their life. Now this is the case that i've found with every builder that i've had we hired them they would make say 20 30k off each job of us which is they would do like four or five jobs so that it might be their first ever time they've earned 100k and every single one of them developed a cocaine habit every single one of them and i don't understand why because they would still be working with me now and they would be multi-millionaires and i would be richer if i had somebody that i could just hire and build out but every single one of them Develop and then the service level dropped, and then I had to go find someone else. The service level dropped, I had to go find somebody else. And then at that point, I had my house done. Um, This was by the latest builder, an English guy. Really, like the work was really, really good. Uh, We've been working together for about two years now. He built quite a few HMOs. He was doing my house, um, so one of his trades did this. The trade now works for me, Um, and he called me up on the Friday, Wednesday. And he knew my rules. At this point, I was like, "If I haven't seen it with this, it hasn't happened, and I don't pay up for it. And he's like, "Kenny, we've finished the work. Can you pay us?" I was like, "Bobby, you know I'm not going to pay. I'm going to pay Friday when I see it." And then immediately he was like, "Oh, don't you trust me? I can't believe you don't trust me!" And I was like, "Oh God, not another one." So anyway, th- th- this continues for the whole week. He's calling me up saying, "I can't believe you took food out of my kid's mouth," and I'm like. I give you six grand on Friday, you dickhead. What the hell are you on about? I haven't taken food out of anyone's mouth. Because my family are not eating tonight because you haven't paid me. And this was like on the Thursday. I'm like, well, that's a you problem. Because they will say anything that they can to get, they have that money on Friday mentality. So they'll say anything that they can to get that money on Friday and wreck the whole relationship up for, in the future of any future earning potential. So I'm very aware of this. And I won't let them ruin that relationship up. Because again, I'm a good guy. I want people to eat. I want people to grow with me. Uh, and it's often like dealing with toddlers. I found when you've got m- main contractors, because you're in that sort of area where you don't want the professional outfit because the cost of them just even going onto site is like 20, 30 K because they've got to do all the F10, the, the health and safety, the hoarding, all that stuff. You want that guy. That's the one man band that's stepping up because he's probably not that registered. He's probably not this He's probably not that et cetera, So you get a better price. So you get what you pay for when you're dealing with builders. So anyway, Thursday comes. He goes, "I'm ripping it all out. We're ripping it back. We're taking the materials. We're, we're sending back the receipts, and that's how we're going to get our money." I'm like, "Well, you're obviously not going to get paid. Obviously, I'm deep in stoicism now, so I'm not reacting. I'm, I'm making sure that I, I don't get emotional because that doesn't serve anybody." I'm like, "Well, if that happens, mate, unfortunately, you're not going to get paid a hundred percent, and you won't be getting your, your family won't be eating until you get to the next job." You will get paid if the work's done on Friday when I come up. Uh, so I'm driving up. He's saying, oh, you're an F in this, F in that. You're a C-U-N-T. Blah, blah, blah. And this is somebody I've worked for for like two and a half years. He obviously has a drug debt that he needs to pay. I already know this from his reactions. This is, this is how an addict acts. Um, mm. uh, I get a call from the Sparks on the Friday. He hasn't paid me. It's been two weeks. So I know that he's not paying his guys. And he's telling the guys that I'm not paying him. Uh, which is true for this week but i paid him friday i turn Mm. up friday night from london um it's it's probably because we in the military we leave we finish work at 12 and then we go home early it's one of the perks uh so i get there for about half three four o'clock all six trades are there uh and about 20 minutes before i call i get there he calls me goes down i'm really sorry the materials didn't make it on time it's not finished so completely flips it round and then tries to go for the sympathy. He wrote, I'm really, really sorry if you could just pay anything so I could pay the guys so they can feed their families. I'm like, eh, don't try this. Eh, you naughty, naughty man. <laughs> um, pull up. They're all there. It completely goes back to being aggressive. He's, I'm not paying you guys because he refuses to pay me. And all the trades are like, whoa. <laughs> I'm like, whoa, whoa. Hold on, hold on, hold on. That's not what we agreed. Bobby said he'd finish it this Friday. I am going to check if it's finished you're, Of course, you're going to get paid. I've paid you for the last two and a half years. Why would I not pay you? It, I want this to be a win win. I'm going to go check the works. So if it's done, you're going to get paid. And they were like, Oh, okay. So the whole mood changes because they think that their work is finished. I go in, uh, days, and, right? I, I go in and there's about four hours work left. Now, if Bobby because had, he hadn't been in all that week, if he, and I, I'll name him because hopefully he draws a lesson from this because he might he might even watch it and people will know who I'm speaking about as well. Um, if he had not called me and spent the time chasing me and done the work, they would have been finished. So I, I just go out, I list the jobs, I go, guys, if you do this, this and this and this, you'll get paid. It's not finished, it's not what was agreed. You've got about four hours work, so you can either get your tools now work late tonight and you'll get paid tonight or we'll come back tomorrow and they came back tomorrow and they did it in an hour they were the fastest workers ever and they did a really good job as well so i paid them and at that point i'm like right i'm not using this guy so then we go into king's Heath, which i call the Buttercolor nightmare and i hire this i hire again another good talker and we, at this time i'm leaving the army and they're putting me something in that's called resettlement training so i'm going into all these trade courses and so Fair enough. Like I'd go on site, and this guy would be grafting, he'd be sweating, he'd be working really hard. But a- again, it's very easy to feel sympathy. But he was doing a pretty bad job of it, in in the sense of like the second fix stuff was really really bad. He was he was obviously learning on YouTube and doing it on our job, which I admire to a certain extent. But he was doing an incredibly poor job. Um, and so, like, if you think of the light switches, how they're meant to be square like this. Some of our light mm. switches are like that. and uh this came to fruition so eventually I uh I I stopped him doing the kitchens because I just learned how to do kitchens and then I did all the kitchens Uh, I stopped him doing the bathrooms because I just learned how to do bathrooms and I did all the bathrooms so there was so I didn't do the first fix but most of the second fix done I was able to sort of butcher and and get together Uh, and I remember this job was so painful because the investor had put the money in, so it was our first JV, and it went terribly wrong. Like we bought it for three hundred five, spent one hundred and eighty on it, and then got back, it valued at three hundred fifty because the work wasn't finished when they came. So we had to tell the investor, "You're not getting any money yet, but you, we have to stay in the steel for the long term, put right all the problems, constantly reinvest in it." Like we put shed felt on the roof, for example, because that's what he just he said. Oh, they put it in Sweden; it should be fine here. So I was like, "Yeah, that sounds right." So <laughs> uh, again, completely my fault absolutely my fault, not the investor's fault, not the builder's fault. It was me for allowing it to happen. So then I decided to get educated and uh, I remember pointing to the light switch and this was the key moment. I was like, what are we going to do about this Alec? And the light switch was like that. He's like, do not worry. You can put big fridge there. I'm like, that is not a solution to that problem. Like, oh my goodness. (laughs) Like I'm starting my own build company. Uh, And I remember him sitting in the kitchen and like, I Found like fire doors that should have been fire doors that were not, that were just normal doors. I'm like, that is not acceptable. And he was like, Daniel, be honest with me. Will you give me other (laughs) projects? I'm like, absolutely not. No way. So we eventually spent a lot of time reinvesting in this property, reinvesting, reinvesting. We got further planning to turn it from a nine to a 13. Uh, And then it's been, I think 2017, the investor hasn't had any money. But he's obviously seen us constantly working to try and improve and get the property up to scratch. And now we're about to sell the property for 7.30 and he'll get like a 50% return. So rather than, well, over like five years, so he's going to get his money back and and his return, but the, rather than just selling the market, selling it to the market and trying to walk away, we, we really own the problem. And like constantly, we're always reinvesting it. We just put a mess system in, for example. And now it's it's actually not a bad hmo and then when the further works get done to turn it into a 13 bed we can put the new roof on it and then everything's good it's good to go for the new investor and that reason is why i set up the construction company and i knew nothing about construction i knew nothing i I said yes to shed felt on the roof for example and the key thing was is that i just knew the logistics side i was watching trades that were getting paid whatever they were getting paid sit in a queue for like two hours three hours to get materials every morning and not working i'm like why don't we hire a guy at 80 quid a day to go drive around get the materials for the trade so the trades turn up the materials they work and they leave and then we have somebody clean up after them and this is this is this is why we're able to build so quickly when we're on site we've got multiple sites now so it's slowed down
0: but i guess the benefits of being the military as well is you learn the importance of operations and logistics and that's where you know, somebody exactly. with your skill set comes in, taking that kind of PM role to to improve efficiencies across the board.
1: Exactly. You've just got to be deliberate with the actions. You've got to see the inefficiency. And it doesn't need to be perfect because ours isn't perfect. Like, you never get perfection. But if there's massive, like, for instance, one of the trades goes with his labourer to collect materials. I'm like, whoa, whoa that, that that bloody labourer can be sweeping the site where you go get the materials. You don't, you don't need two people to wait in traffic. Um and there's just a lot of stuff like that that needs to get done we have somebody that's just a procurement now their whole role is to get the materials on site ready for the trades Um, and it's not too difficult to do it just takes a bit of deliberate action but most of the business owners that i was hiring weren't being deliberate with their actions they were just expecting like they'd be like those materials need to get there i'll just assume they'll get there and the trade will turn up. there'll be no materials for them there'll be time wasted uh, and then they're trying to come back to me to get more money. I'm like, whoa, no, 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 your inefficiencies is, is not my problem. Now, there was sort of a, a learning period. And we obviously had lots of mistakes. There was lots of falling out, lots of mistakes by myself in the way that I manage. And just getting that a little bit better each day, each day, each day, each day, getting the systems and processes just by accident, really. We've built a fairly successful business and now we've got projects on that are in in excess of 6 million in GDV across the board um, that we're actively building. Now we've got four active projects and obviously there are still hurdles, but this was all from seeing that there was a problem, knowing that I wasn't getting the service that I wanted uh, and then creating that service for my other businesses. So now it's sort of like a synergistic uh, relationship. So my, my property company hires my build company, the lettings manages the property company, the sourcing business. Sources for investors that goes through the construction company. Then it goes through the management company and then we manage it in perpetuity. So it's sort of like a closed end development. And there's also JV opportunities as well. There are people we JV with, I'll go source the deal, buy it, get planning on it, send it through the construction company, send it through the lettings company. And then the investor gets the return at the end. Now the, the really key thing about this that i want to impress upon everyone is that i had zero experience in every business that i've done i've just learned as i did the the excuse of me not having the money to do it the excuse of me not having the skills to do it didn't even enter my mind i was like i'll I'll find a way and you kind of do if you're like as the saying goes the world moves aside to let any man pass who knows where he's going if you have clarity of vision and you're offering an opportunity you'll definitely make it everything that you want is it's really all about the deliberate actions that you take now, it's, it's without a doubt, I'm easily, easily, easily the best HMO builder in, in Birmingham in terms of the model that we do, because we can churn them out. If you want to go for a high-end boutique, that, that's not who we are. But if you want the good, robust uh, HMOs, like the, the HMOs that I deliver, get the most rents by a, a long shot, and I, I'll probably be the first £1,000 a room in, in Birmingham one of the HMOs that I build eventually. Uh, we're, we're very, very close. We're getting 950, 900 in areas wow. where previously there were two, 200, 350. And there's nothing unique about the HMOs that we build. They just, they, they have utility over an aesthetic. So they'll have kitchens, they'll have bathrooms. There'll be really, really robust materials in there. Uh, the plain white walls with gray carpets with a bit of soft furnishings is all you need. What, what really tenants matter really care about is space, um, utility and internet and bins. That's it. Those are the three things that you should focus on. And because I am who I am, I like the outside of the buildings to be nice because we follow the ethos of build for all time, not just our time. So I will invest as little as I possibly can on the inside and put most of it on the outside just because I like to own nice buildings. I won't build an ugly building. I I look back at what we used to build in the 1800s when labour and stone was cheap. And I think those people built empires the modern people that build today are, are the ones that gave it away i'm not going to copy them i'm going to copy those back then um, just cuz i want to walk around my city and it be beautiful not soulless boxes um and really
0: like your part of history yeah. <laughs> going from what you just said there obviously again it kind of goes back to the efficiencies and holistically you're then managing and controlling the whole process from sourcing construction lettings etc so again you've kind of you've grown this business over time, the source and business. Then you went into construction and you went into da 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 da, And it's, again, it all kind of flows and comp- complements each other. So, so that's been really interesting. And again, these things take time and that growth. The other thing that I wanted to ask you as we're talking ha- about HMOs is, um, what your thoughts and kind of article four is, is that in Birmingham, is that kind of uh, article 4 is a, a in pain Birmingham. within your area and is that growing across the UK and equally what is the planning process in terms of, I know you mentioned there kind of your larger HMOs, uh, anything that, is it, is it seven uh, rooms or is it six or seven you start need to, needing planning permission on, so that'd uh, be need, interesting. You,
1: to know. you need planning permission on any now because Birmingham is an Article 4 area, which means uh, you, you okay. don't have the permitted development rights of going from C3 to C4, but in, in reality, there's still ways around that. For me, i to just give a bit of for context to people what Article 4 is for the
0: people uh, that don't know? Yeah.
1: So in the UK, we have something called permitted development, which means I can do this without permission of my nearby neighbors. Um, and it is turning a residential house, which is classed as C3 into C4, which is into a house of multiple occupancy, which C4 is restricting you up to six occupants. Uh, and then if you go above six, it's called a Swiss generous HMO. Uh, and it doesn't really have a planning class. It's just like other It's like Swiss generous stands for like, like unclassified as it were and you can get them through but Birmingham unfortunately is saturated with landlords who see it as a hobby rather than a business now there's a massive transition from those houses that are being purchased by the likes of myself to um the likes of say like Tom Foley buying some um uh, Andy Elard. like there's a there's, there's a cable of us that are just hoovering up HMOs and turning them into high quality units now what we tend to find from the planners is that they don't believe that we're going to make them this nice, even though we show them examples of what they previously were, because we are like the half a percent of the 99.5 where they're absolute squalor. If you think of the old Victorian tenement houses, that that's what HMOs became. They're dilapidated. They're not reinvested. They're really badly asset managed. Um, You've got to be a constant reinvestment in the HMOs for them to keep giving you the good returns you don't just fire and forget there's lots of maintenance that constantly needs to be done like in perpetuity it's a full-time role Um, so the planning system doesn't look favorably upon HMOs now I've got countless of examples where all the neighbors like I had a petition delivered to my house for Park Road uh, for people who didn't want it and now the neighbors were like I can't believe how nice it looks it's absolutely stunning like it's such a great HMO I'm really glad you didn't do what most people do um because they all have really bad really 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 bad um preconceptions of HMOs and it's understandable why they have it because most of them are awful the HMOs that I've bought that already have planning are absolutely awful Uh, and that's what I do I try and look for HMOs already have planning that I can add value to uh, and then get the most rent for and it's planning system is something that you're gonna need to learn so I have three rules that really de-risk any plan issues I might have because I raise my money from private investors. I don't like to put my money into deals. I like to raise it, put it into a deal, do the works, pay them back. And that property income pays that investor until they're fully paid off. And then I get the income. That's how I grow my portfolio. So I can't afford to be in planning for two, three years. Like some people are. So I have a few rules and that is unless it has planning, I won't buy it. Unless it has something that I can do for PD, I won't buy it. Or if I need to get planning, it needs to be able to be purchased with a mortgage and then wash its face. So my city road project, which is a really grand like Victorian or Georgian like country house where the city has grown and enveloped it, that is earning income and that's going to sit in plan for probably two, three years to get the 21 units. Um, and, but it's fine because it's, it's earning a little bit of money and the investor is happy with that. So I'll go and try and buy already. Poorly managed HMOs because there's so many in the city. There's so so many, and then hopefully you can sort of change the relationship between the the vendors and the neighbors of what they consider a HMO. Um, and, but the planning system is going to be a lot longer, cost a lot more than you ever envisaged. And the the problem that we had is that we got planning for everything initially. It just was so easy. Like we put it in, get it. 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 And then we didn't get it. We were obviously had all these previous success stories, so we had a false sense of what it would take to get planning. So we were like, this is worth 300. Let's raise 200 from an investor, get 200 on a bridge. Then we'll have hundred K in the bank ready to build. Cause obviously planning is only going to take six weeks. Four years later, we finally get planning on a bridge and we're like, oh, <laughs> uh, we sell it. Uh, so I still did the build. We had to sell it at really disadvantaged um, circumstances because at th- that same point, I was doing another deal where the bank had pulled the mortgage. So I was in a very vulnerable situation. I had to sell that to finish this deal uh, or else I would have kept them all and they would have been fantastic HMOs, but it was just, just so happens it was a hurdle. But I'm really glad that hurdle happened because then I pulled my thumb out of my bum and I went and found proper planning consultants, proper architects. Our planning consultant was our roofer. Our architect and planning consultant was our <laughs> roofer who, who, who knew CAD drawings. But to be fair to him, he got through four apps. And they were all accepted, uh, but Fantastic. when I, when I see a design and access statement now, that's like a 20 page document with all the consultation details and all the noise and impact statements, the traffic statements, and we would put in outline planning with no, no consultation and we'd get planning. So it's, it's the, the evidence that you need to provide is a lot more. And we just got very lucky four times, which I, don't, I you couldn't do now. Yeah, um... I think the
0: planning landscape has changed significantly again because of COVID. Everything kind of went into shutdown, and then a lot of people were kind of waiting on planning applications. And as soon as things opened back up, a lot of planning applications were then submitted, and a lot of um, the the council obviously got put on furlough. So these things were just taking longer and longer and longer. And, And actually, what happened is a lot of the larger house builders ended up. If you were a good planning officer in the council, a lot of the large house builders would snap you up, they'd add an extra 10K onto your salary, and then you'd just move over and then go and work for one of the major house builders. They're like, well, you've got the knowledge, you've got the contacts, you can kind of join the dark side and come and join us to some degree, which then is obviously good in some ways, but then it just means that that workload, in the council hasn't gone anywhere. That's now been divided opposed to being divided between Eight, it's now been divided by between four, which is then obviously longing out the whole process yeah. while they're trying to recruit new planners, etc. So, it's it's struggling across the board, and I think everyone from you know your, your single property investors to your larger house builders, I think the the planning cycle as a whole is is a struggle, and um, nothing is guaranteed. I mean, we got planning permission for for our scheme uh, within minimal con- consultation, I think we got it done in eight weeks or something incredible, which we just weren't expecting at all. Um, but then equally, as you said there, are, I've seen some take 12 months, 18 months, et cetera. So it's, it's always kind of that risky process. Going back to what you're saying about purchasing HMOs and then adding value. I take it, are you purchasing them on the bricks and mortar value? or Are you buying them on the kind of the current commercial value? And if it is the commercial value, what sort of, um, percentage yields that usually based on?
1: Um, so most landlords who are long-term HMOs are not aware of the commercial valuation thing they, they, okay. they don't, they, they don't understand that you can value it on the income that it, it generates. Cause if they did, they'd reinvest in them. Almost all of them just think, ah, oh, properties a selling for this much. Mine must be worth around this. So you can give them the bricks and mortar valuation, do the works to the property, get it refinanced and you'll pull most of your money out so it's a massive win you can pay market value today add the value that you know also asset manage it very well uh, get the rents up refinance it and pull out most of your money so like, like my most successful deal was one that i purchased for three i think three uh, four three five um we spent 177k on it it got valued at 865 we pulled out 640 or whatever it was so it didn't pull out all because there was associated costs here and there but like that makes 54 grand a year and I paid market value for it and I've only got about 12,
0: 13,000 pound left in the deal from conception to delivery. Wow. So it yeah, just goes to show the importance of knowledge and education, right? These people are sat on this 20%. asset and don't realize the, the true value of it. And if they're to go on one of these courses or something and learn about the commercial valuation, etc., then they themselves, you know, as you just said there, if you pay five grand for a course or 10 grand or whatever but then you're able to generate an extra 40 grand worth of or of the asset that you obtain then it's it's a no-brainer isn't it
1: exactly that's why i'll go on everyone's course and if i think it's crap i'll very quickly share but i haven't been on a course that's crap every single course that i've been on has made me more money than i paid every single one and i've spent a lot of money on courses Um, Whether it's a planning course, whether it's uh, a sourcing course, whether it's a business course, whether it's a how to set up group structures course, whether it's a trade course. Um, you've just gotta you've gotta realize that there is no destination where you say, right, I've made it, I'm ready, I'm done. You've got to constantly be seeking knowledge because you don't know what you don't know exactly, really. And and other people will have different angles of looking at the same thing. Now I, I'm a hundred percent sure of my HMO model because it's working. Everyone who buys a HMO and gets it developed by me makes a ton of money. Everybody who copies my model makes a couple and, and it isn't my model as well. I have to give props to Rob Hunter. It's his model. So all I've done is just copy somebody who's done it in another city. Um, and it's completely like copy paste. I have changed nothing. Um, the only thing that we do did to reinvent
0: the wheel, is there? Exactly. Is, is if somebody exactly. successful, well, why not learn from them and then apply it within your own area? It's a no brainer, right?
1: Yeah. So I've taken his delivery of HMOs and then I've added my construction, added my lettings, added my because. I haven't completely copied his sort of like management style. I've just copied like what he delivers to the tenants. Um, and you can borrow bits from everybody and create a very successful group and never need any creativity at all. I am the least creative person whatsoever. Like uh, uh, my HMOs uh, could be described as like a, a white mint, like there's literally nothing unique about them, but they earn an absolute ton because they're what the market wants clean. HMOs, lots of room in the bedrooms, kitchens, en-suites, plenty of internet, plenty of heating. Uh, I, I'm not one of those landlords that are like, oh you need to have the heating. Like, So what if they have the heating up? Instead of making 50k, I'll make 41k. It's not the end of the world. So, And your tenants stay longer when you provide that service. It's really, really important that you don't get caught up because... Like even now, and Tool will be happy that I mention it. Like we're in a group chat. I say, if we were ever JV partners, we'd be jousting because you waste so much money on soft furnishings. I'm like, that is an absolute waste. But he bloody loves it. He loves making those HMOs and that's a different product. But when our HMOs earn the same amount of money, and his has spent tens of thousands of pounds extra on soft furnishings. And I've spent nothing it, 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 for me. It seems like a, a no brainer yeah,
0: ROI it. perspective. It's a, it's, it's a no brainer. Yeah. But so just before we wrap this off, I got two questions for you. The first one is when we first started talking at the beginning of this, you mentioned that you had a, a six bed HMO that you were converting into a studio, six studios. Yes. I was wondering, so <clears throat> if the HMOs are such a good earner, how comes you're now converting them into studios? What's kind of the well, mindset? Per, that?
1: They, they, it's still a HMO. I'm just putting kitchens in the rooms. So it's all okay. one gas bill, one. So that's the model now. So uh, I was doing HMOs with en suites and doubles. Uh, I went to see Rob, he was putting kitchens in his and earning significantly more and it doesn't cost that much to put a kitchen in if you've got the infrastructure there you've just got to make sure you have small
0: kitchen essentially
1: uh well not just that because you've got to improve the electrics and you've got to improve the water coming into the property so those are pretty pretty substantial costs um is that a change in planning no because it's so in (laughs) birmingham in some councils it is they'll consider it a change of planning and i can see you're ticking you're like oh my god i need to find out if it's in my area because you earn a lot more because they get valued as studios but there's still a hmo in the podcast oh, wow. so if you go to birmingham hmo guidelines you will see something called a hmo a2 so you have a1 a2 a3 a4 a1 is double rooms with an ensuite a2 is bedsit self-contained so birmingham say this is the planning class this is what you need to provide <laughs> so the reason why we are. Uh we're not actually digressing from the HMO model. We're just copying the Rob's Hunter's model from Lincoln that we're putting kitchens in the room. So that's still a HMO. If you search the HMO guidelines in Birmingham, you will get this really, really concise document that what the council expect of their bedsits, like the the ship has sailed in terms of HMOs being self-contained because Birmingham is full of bedsits. It's absolutely, there's more bedsits than there are flats in Birmingham as it stands. Uh, and a bedsit is a self contained h m o room now they want to have view of those undersized studios they don't want them to be c 3 individual bandage units, although <laughs> a lot of them are for council tax um and so they tell you how much amenity space they need how many work square, surface, uh, square meters of work surface they need, what amenities they need in that unit, how much uh, of a like fire system you need like what type. The fact that they need fire lobbies how much outside space they need so there's a really concise document so I will buy HMOs that are double rooms and then put kitchens in them because they are giving me a document um, to say hey this is a HMO and most of every single room that can be self-contained is in the process in my portfolio becoming self-contained now the reason why this is so powerful is because it gets valued as a studio by the banks because it's based on the income that you produce so you then get the added value of having really great rental income. You get the yield applied to studios within that local area because they're the sole comparables. So the valuations, they go from 400 to 800. So that's why I was able to buy Kennedy's Corner. And yes, I named it after myself 435 spend money on it to get it up to scratch, put the kitchens in the, the units upgrade the fire alarm system, upgrade the communal space, upgrade every single unit and get near on double for the same plot. And the rents wow. are also fantastic. So this is why it's, it's a fantastic strategy if that's what you want to do. And there's no need to go all airy fairy gray walls, gray woodwork, white wall, uh, sorry, white walls, gray woodwork, gray carpet, kitchens in the rooms. And yes, they're gray, um, a
0: bed wardrobe, chest of drawers, desk. So uh, is there, is there a minimum room size these have to be? Cause yes. you know, let's say you're, let's say you're buying a, a four bed house and you're trying to convert it in, into this and you want to do an extension on the back, etc. Then for a studio, let's say usually for a studio, I think it's 37 square meters is a, yes. is a, a studio flat. And so does that obviously you're going to surely struggle to get a bedroom that's 37 square meters. So how does that work?
1: So that's if you're going to get them individually classed as studios, but a HMO, you can have them as bedsit. So they're a different class. They're not, you don't have to adhere to the minimum space standards. They do have minimum space standards. Birmingham have imposed that and that's 13 square meters. So that's a lot easier to get a HMO, put kitchens in the rooms within those parameters. And most of the rooms you'll find in Birmingham, they're big Edwardian, big Victorian properties are well over
0: 25 anyway. Gotcha. So you're Unless getting a big a bedroom, house. putting it on suite in there, putting a kitchen in there, and then getting it classified as a studio and getting the valuation on that.
1: Getting it valued as a studio, but it's still in the planning yeah. class, class as a HMO.
0: Yeah. Oh nice. No, that that that's really interesting. And again, the benefits of having people like yourself on and and sharing this sort of knowledge, hopefully these sorts of things will be really insightful and really helpful to other people. So the last few things I wanted to discuss was just your um, kind of opinion on the market today and where you think it's going to be in the next year, two years, Trying to get your crystal ball out.
1: Yeah, so like hurdles are part of life there if it wasn't this, it'd be something else. Uh, it was COVID. We all got locked down. Uh, before that, it was Brexit. Before that, it was there's always going to be a reason not to there's always going to be a hurdle. But there are still rich people in any economy. There are still people that make money in any economy. So for me, like I had this conversation yesterday at Partners and Property and asked the question, I was like, I'm hearing all this doom and gloom from every single body, every person that I chat to like out there in the civilian world, as I call it. Um, But things have never been better for me. I feel like I'm missing something like my every company has more revenue, every company is uh i'm getting offered more money getting offered more deal getting offered more trades getting offered more work my only hurdle is the capacity to deliver it so for me if you're if you're placed in the right put if you present yourself in the right way and you're you have business ethics of doing what you say you will if there's a problem you stay in it to the end you be the finisher because there are a lot of people that aren't finishers they start things move on to the next thing and don't don't complete um, you have to be that finisher. People will still come to you in times of hardship because they'll value trust over the will. They'll, they'll value the trust over the price they pay, over this, this, the other hurdles that are out there. People still need to live in homes. People still need to work. Uh, people still need to eat. People still need to have work done to their houses. And there are going to be people that drown, but it's going to be the people that are unprepared. So you've just you've got to expect hurdles. So for me the market is obviously going to take a bath it's clear like the market's going to go down it's not a case of how much it's it's a case of it's not a case of if it's a case of how much now but for me i'm about to i'm i'm embarking on two of the biggest deals i've ever done borrowing the most amount of money that i've ever done still at rates that are really good because it's de-risked so for me i i would i don't care if the market tanks because i'm going to be okay i don't care if the market goes up because i'm going to be okay what i care about is the ability to just acquire more deals use the same model now if the parameters of the market are different i'm still just going to apply the same like i need a 35 percent roi if it's a hmo i need a 10 percent if it's um a buy to let so they're not far-fetched really they're quite modest returns that i expect from a property deal and if they stack at that level i buy them if they don't stack at that level i don't buy them if the price goes down it has no bearing on what i what I will do because I've already got that re- return when I have bought it. And over the long term, we know property goes up in value because of our whole system is debt based. They want money inflated away to devalue the pound. So the debt becomes smaller. So it's more manageable because we, especially the government with all these, the NHS, the expenditure, everything, we're never paying that back, that na- national debt. Never, we're only ever going to grow ourselves out of it. And the debt is just going to get a smaller percent of the economy. That's, that's how every economy works. So when you know that, you know, that debt is going to get cheaper. The pound is going to get cheaper. So when you have say four or 5 million pounds worth of debt on 8 million pounds worth of assets over 10 years, it's not that property prices go up. Sometimes they do. It's that the pound gets devalued. That's all that happens is that that pound can now buy less. So you have to put more pounds into that property, but the debt remains the same. So the market is going to take a bath and people who have been on really thin margins, so your rent to renters are going to be hurting with with all the bills that are coming up, the interest rates are going up. There's going to be a lot of pain, but for those prepared, there's going to be a lot of opportunity. Now it's a horrible thing to say this, but I'm probably going to make the most money that I'll ever make in the next year or two from the unprepared that need to cash out. Um, and it, it, it. Is it predatory? No, not really. They're they're unprepared. It's player versus player in this world. You've got to be prepared or unprepared. It's there's, mm. there's no there's no charity. It's business. So when these assets come up for sale, and they will, and what I'm looking at is the cranes in the city centre. Thinking one of those is going to go pop, and that's I, I want to be hoovering those up. Uh, And that's what I'm preparing for. I'm raising money with partners. uh, And I'm waiting for somebody as well as still growing my other companies. uh, I'm waiting for somebody to basically take a bath need to cash out quickly. And so I can offer them that way out. Uh, So if you're prepared, great. If you're not prepared, then like the only person you have to blame is yourself. Really? It's like the signs were all there. They were all there. Like, and if it wasn't this, it would have been something else. So when we get out of this, Make sure you prepare for the next downturn because there's going to be again like this is a cyclical this will absolutely happen again this in so this will the Buffett first time says, isn't
0: it be, be greedy when others are fearful and fearful when others are greedy and i think that's just kind of testament to what you've just said there
1: exactly yeah i'm, I'm growing on every metric that you could have because it's it's probably a horrible thing to say but it's quite <clears> exciting <throat> for me and it's exciting it's also for the, the power of knowledge me.
0: as well it kind of Go, go through, kind of get the knowledge and, and have that consistency. And then when the opportunity strikes, i.e. now, next year, in a few years time, who knows, that's when the majority of, of the money will be made. And you're in the place now where you have the contacts, <clears throat> you've got the business, you've got the investors, you've got all these things all lined up and, you know, they've obviously been doing well over the last few years. But as you just said there, the majority of your money is going to be made in the next two. And that's because you've now got all these things in place.
1: Exactly. I
0: always knew it was coming.
1: Everybody knew that the downturn was coming. After they printed all that money during COVID, it was, it was inevitable Mm. to everybody who was even half literate, that that money is going to cause massive amounts of inflation, interest rates are going to have to go up to combat that. And the economy is going to basically be tanked until inflation comes under control. Now, the obviously element Mm. that we didn't know about was the Ukraine war and that just was just unlucky really it happened well it's unlucky for the ukrainians more than us so how dare we complain about that but (laughs) that's just pushed prices up and coupled with the the covid money and the the cost of fuel going up it needs to work its way through the system and the only way it can work its way through the system is by interest rates going up now for those who are in the know who complain about the no one should be complaining about the interest rates rises they should be complaining that it didn't happen soon enough because the damage that rampant inflation can do to economies is irreversible, irreversible. You can work your way out of a recession. You cannot work your way out of rampant inflation. You like, if you look at Argentina, for example, as a prime example, they used to have a better economy than the UK in the eighties, but then, or I'm not sure exactly when, but they had rampant inflation and it destroyed the economy and it will, it will probably never, ever get to the place where it's close to the British economy. Um, Mm -hmm. it's. Like it's a, it's an absolutely good thing that the interest rates are going up for that, we've just got to take this pain now. It's going to be a rough two years for those who, uh, who are unprepared as it were, um, but it needs to happen. And I speak as somebody who's got a couple of million pounds of variable debt. So my payments have gone, not doubled, like nearly tripled, but because I knew this was coming, I don't, it's it's fine. I knew it was coming, that so I prepared. I have a massive reserve to to manage this decline. The assets make way more than the debt, so it just means I make less, but I don't live off that income anyway. It all gets reinvested. It just means I won't invest as much. So obviously, it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough for a few people, um, but it's also going to be it's going to be a really great time to start a business because there's going to be lots of businesses that are going to be bought for a pound. That are laden with debt. There's going to be lots of businesses that will in future be sold for millions that are bought for a pound in the next year or two. There's going to be mm-hmm. lots of properties, companies that have services that are poorly managed by people who are tired and who haven't sought to grow that are going to be bought for a pound that in three, four years time will be sold for hundreds, if not millions. So th- this is the time when it happens, when those unprepared get, take a bath, they go back from being business owners back to being people who work in jobs and those assets will get hoovered up by people who are prepared who are diligent who are who have been frugal who have saved who have who who knew this was coming so it depends on which side of the equation you are is the property market going to go down yes is there going to be plenty of opportunity yes do you have to be scared if you're not prepared yes so oh my goodness <laughs> now we've got the postman here um, so yeah no, it's the- that's it really watch, I, I...
0: watch this space Watch this space i think is all we can say and i've um no i'm 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 really glad that i've kind of started this poddy for this reason is i think we we've had a really good conversation i'm really glad that you came on to be honest mate it was um really insightful for myself and hopefully for other people as well so for anyone that you know wants to reach out to you or get in contact with you what would be the best way to do so
1: uh, well, I, I wouldn't say get in contact with me. You can, you can, you can follow me on Facebook, but I'm far too busy to chat to people.
0: <laughs> yeah, for, no, no, of course, I mean, just want to chat. You're, you're, you're so, <laughs> yeah. Just call you up one day. Yeah. No, I meant kind of uh, Facebook. How you doing? Um, what, what, what sort of um, ways uh, could people kind of yeah, follow got, you and follow uh, your story?
1: Uh, I've got an Instagram uh, and I've got a Facebook uh, page. I'm very, very open with what I'm doing day to day on the Facebook page. So you can see what I get up to Um, every day. I'm working every day. I'm doing stuff like even today, you know, it's my birthday, but I don't celebrate birthdays because it's not something worth celebrating. Oh, wow.
0: Happy birthday.
1: Yeah, I uh, I, I, I only celebrate wins. Um, I don't see see birthdays as a reason to celebrate. Like after this, I'll be going to site to collect some ladders to fix a roof
0: leak. Um, Built different. Memento not... more you better tick one of those weeks off my friends. No, well, it's just,
1: yeah, Let, let's not get into the birthdays. I just don't think they're <laughs> worth celebrating. But so you can follow us on Facebook uh, and I sort of blog about what I do. So I'll, I'll talk about like, I'm looking at this deal. Uh, I went to this deal, offered on it. I don't have the money to buy it. Watch me go raise the money to buy it, just stuff like that. So it's, it's more of a blog. So if you're interested about how property works, then take a look there.
0: Awesome. Thank you very much.
1: All right, cheers.